And as they make their way back to their seats, I'm going to invite you all to pray with me before we begin the sermon. Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we have, um, we've wrapped up the book of Leviticus. Yay. Right? And now we're in numbers. Isn't that great? Everyone loves it. Um, different book, kind of still dry. Uh, it's called Numbers because there are lots of numbers in it. The people who named the books of the Bible weren't always the most creative people. I'll give them that. Um, but we're going to be in Numbers chapter 6, and we're going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to skip ahead and read the last four verses. So Numbers 6, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Whenever a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of, his, of hair on his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord he shall not eat Sorry, he shall not go near a dead body. Hope he doesn't need a dead body. <laughs> not even for his father or for his mother or for his brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. And skipping ahead into verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you bless your food before you eat it? Yes, some people... A lot of suspicious silence when I said that, by the way. Um, most of us probably, you know, say some kind of prayer, at least periodically, right? We bless our food. Um, you know, the benediction that Trudy and I offer at the end of each service is, is a blessing, right? So what exactly are we doing? Right? We're all familiar with the idea of being blessed or offering a blessing, and we'll talk about how something or someone was a blessing to us, um, how a disappointment turned out to be a blessing in disguise. We'll, uh, we'll ask for a father's blessing to marry his daughter. And that means we use the word blessing in a lot of different ways that mean a lot of different things. God's blessing is a significant and particular theme in the Bible, and in particular in the Old Testament. It's hugely important in the Torah, and especially in Genesis. The, the fruitfulness of the land and the people is considered a clear sign of God's blessing. It's not something that can be taken for granted. 
So you can generally understand a blessing to be God bestowing something on you that is not otherwise guaranteed. And that covers a huge range of things. And frankly, it, it covers things that we might not think of as being non-guaranteed. It also covers things we might not think of as having anything to do with God. Because it can cover just about anything, right? If you were able to get pregnant, that's a blessing. Fertility is not and never has been guaranteed. A lot of us know that one from painful experience. If you're healthy, that's a blessing. Health is not and has never been guaranteed. If you have a house to live in, a steady job, a reliable car, a happy marriage, these are all blessings. None of them are guarantees. And here's the really scary part. Just because you have those things today does not mean they are guaranteed for tomorrow. And I want you to notice that nowhere does God say that if you don't have one of these things, that he's punishing you or singling you out for suffering. That's not how it works. We're kind of walking this razor's edge here between good theology and the prosperity gospel, right? God promises to bless his faithful people, but there is no formula to determine how God is going to bless you, and there is no promise that he will give you exactly the blessing you want. And there's not a, like a list of behaviors or actions that will guarantee or prevent specific blessings for you. In other words, it's not your fault if you can't have children. If you can't hold down a steady job, it's not because God has turned against you. And if you get cancer and it isn't miraculously healed, it's not because you were a sinner or you weren't just praying hard enough. Instead, you have to begin looking for the other ways that God has blessed you. Or perhaps for the ways in which you can be a blessing from God to someone else. You may not be able to have children of your own, but there are a whole lot of children in the world who need loving parents and don't have them. And you can be God's blessing to them. God may not heal you on this side of the grave, but your strength and courage as you face your own mortality can be God's blessing to plenty of other people who otherwise don't know what true strength looks like. And there's another thing to consider here. Almost every time the Old Testament talks about God's blessing, it isn't referring to individual blessings. It's not talking about what God's going to do for you by yourself. They're communal blessings. If the people are holy and faithful, God will bless them. If the people break the covenant, God will curse them. And that, by the way, is an important distinction because it never says, if you don't do this, God will punish you this way. It says, if the entire people of Israel break faith, bad things will happen. This is not about individual actions and individual blessings so much as it's about communal actions and communal blessings. And that's a critical point. And it's precisely what so many modern preachers and teachers miss. Most of God's promises in the Bible are not given to individuals, but to the people of God as a whole. So no, if you pray really hard and have perfect faith and use positive thinking and live perfectly without sin, God isn't going to give you a mansion or a yacht. I'm sorry if you were here hoping for that. It's not going to happen. But if we all 
pray really hard and, and have strong faith and work to the best of our ability to be holy like God is holy and we give generously of our money and our time and our talents, then maybe, just maybe God will give us a church yacht. Think of all the ministry we could do with a church yacht. I mean, that would be awesome, right? We could reach people in the farthest corners of the globe. Come on. Call it the SS Forest or something. I don't know. Um, in all seriousness, the, the promise of God's blessing is for all his people. And God always fulfills his promises. And look at how the blessing is described, right? His face will shine upon us, right? You know, when you go outside and the sun shines on you, okay, that's not a good example right now. Um, but in three to four months, it's going to feel good when you go outside and the sun shines on you, right? You can c compare it kind of like when, when someone smiles at you. You know, when, when someone you love smiles at you, it feels good. It, it sparks something deep inside you. When my wife smiles at me, when my daughter smiles at me, when my dog wags her tail at the side of me in the door, right? It sparks this feeling of joy and, and contentment deep inside, right? That smile is a sign of love, but it's, it's also linked with grace. We don't think about this very often. But there is something unpredictably and mysteriously gracious about being loved. You know that you don't deserve it. Now, we talk about that in terms of God's love all the time, but what most of us, no marriage class ever talks about this, by the way, and they really should. What most of us who've been married more than 30 seconds recognize is that the person we married, we don't deserve their love. We're not supposed to say that loud, but they don't deserve our love either, right? We can't always put our finger out, but, but there is something deep inside us that recognizes we don't deserve that. None of our most attractive attributes can cause us to be loved because they're balanced out by our less attractive attributes, aren't they? That love is undeserved, but it's real. We even recognize that when we give it. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you. Right? This evokes this image of someone with power and authority looking with favor upon their subjects. And so the blessing being prayed for is for the people to know and to experience the deep love of their God and the favor of their king. That they might know deep in their bones with every fiber of their being that the almighty creator of the universe sees them, loves them, and grants them his provision and his protection. That's the blessing they're supposed to receive. Now, the earlier part of the chapter talks about these Nazarite vows. And these are people, both men and women, who choose to dedicate themselves to God. They're not the priests. They're, they're not the religious officials. They're just everyday people who feel called to do something special. Someone dedicated to God is called in Hebrew a Nazir, hence Nazarite. And a Nazarite is not necessarily a Nazarite for life, right? They, they can be just a Nazarite for like a period of time, for whatever reason. It might be uh, in the same way that some of us might decide to fast in the run-up to something important in our lives, a major event. Um, someone might have decided to become a Nazarite as they, you know, prayed for God to bless them with a child or something. Or in a couple of very prominent examples in the Bible, they, they tell God they'll, they'll make their child a Nazarite if they just give them a child, right? Moms have been voluntelling their children to do things since biblical times. Um, 
the most famous Nazarite is going to be Samson, right? He's supposed to be a Nazarite for his whole life, and he very famously violates all of his Nazarite vows over and over again. The things that mark a person as being dedicated to God all have to do with self-denial. You promise to give up not just alcohol, but anything that even remotely resembles alcohol and all the things you make alcohol from. I don't know why they felt the need to specify you can't eat the seeds or skins of grapes, but they did, right? That doesn't seem like something you'd have to call out specifically. I've never been tempted to eat grape seeds, but, you know, it's there. Can't have vinegar made from wine or beer, right? Strong drink in the Old Testament, by the way, is beer. Um, Can't have the drink, can't have the vinegar made from it, can't have the fruit you use to make it. Give it all up. You have to let your hair grow out, which seems kind of like an odd one, but, you know, when you stop and think about it, our our hair is actually kind of important to us. Um, Some of you who've lost it may disagree with that statement, but, you know, the the ability to, to do what you want with it and cut it and style it as you wish, it matters more to us than most of us tend to realize. And a Nazarite can't cut it, can't style it, can't trim it, can't do anything to it. Just got to grow out in wild dreadlocks. You have to avoid contact with death. Death always makes people unclean in the Old Testament, by the way, because one of God's most important attributes is that he is the living God. He is the creator and sustainer of all life. Death is the antithesis of God. So for most people, when they're required to have contact with death, they have a a purification ceremony they go through. And everyone would do this because everyone has contact with death. Because if one of your family members dies, you prepare the body for burial and you bury them. And that's a job most of us wouldn't want, but they want it. This is a huge deal for them. It is, it is the most important way they can honor their loved ones who have passed on, to lovingly prepare them for burial and lay them to rest. A Nazarite can't even do that. They cannot intentionally come into contact with death, which means they cannot bury their own family members if they die. The, the closest modern-day equivalent would be to skip the funeral even if it's your parent or your spouse or your child. Taking these vows of dedication to God means making some very difficult choices. You might recall that Jesus will tell people they can't follow him if they're unprepared to make hard choices. He tells one person outright he'll have to choose between burying his parents and following Jesus. Now, there's nothing in the Old Testament that tells us why a person might consider taking Nazareth vows. We just have to speculate. The only real concern here is making sure that people don't make these vows too casually. If they want to dedicate themselves to God, they better stop and think about it and consider all the consequences. This is exactly the same thing that Jesus does with his followers in the gospel. He turns people away who are just caught up in the moment with all the excitement but aren't truly committed. So what's the connection between these? These are two weird parts of the chapter. Right? They don't have any obvious connection. We've talked about God's blessing for his people and these really strict Nazarite vows, but not everyone was a Nazarite, and in fact, there's hardly any mention of Nazarites in the Bible after this. Samson and the prophet Samuel are really the only two who get mentioned by name. So it's really a question of how we respond to God's blessing in our lives. There is a clear 
solid promise here that God will bless and keep his people. That he loves us, that he'll watch over us and care for us. That we will have what we need. That God is present with us. And he wants to provide for us. And it's natural for us when we understand that. When we truly get it deep down and we recognize at a fundamental level the incredible goodness of our God to want to respond in kind, to, to want to make this grand gesture of our own dedication back to God. And God kind of cautions us against that. He's essentially telling us, don't commit to something that you aren't ready for. We tend to be kind of reactionary, right? We make rash decisions without pausing to think over the consequences. Even the most reasonable people among us will do this from time to time, right? Um, but when you look at especially collective human behavior, this becomes a real problem. Most of human history is just the results of humans in mass reacting unwisely in both positive and negative ways to the events of their lives. Entire wars have been fought for that reason. Remember when we all realized that Ozempic can help you with weight loss? And it wasn't long before diabetics who actually needed the drug couldn't get it. And then after thousands of people started taking it for weight loss, we all realized that this isn't actually a very good idea because you can't stop taking the drug if you want to keep the weight off. But now people have committed. And they're going to have to keep paying for the drug if they want to keep the weight off. We do this with our relationships too, right? When we first fall in love with someone, it's really easy to go too fast and overcommit. Right? We all know this because there are movies coming out about it every month. Right? This is like a standard movie plot. And in the process, you might wreck that relationship. And we do it to our God, too. The best example of this is Peter in the Last Supper. Right? Jesus wants to wash his feet, and at first Peter doesn't want him to do this because that's what the servants do. I should be washing your feet. But when Jesus explains why he needs to, Peter overcorrects, doesn't he? Okay, Jesus, then wash my whole body, right? Peter, put your clothes back on. It's fine. I can just do your feet. It's okay. He overcorrects. At several points during his ministry, Jesus tells people that to truly follow him, they may have to be prepared to make tough decisions. He never tells him it's a guarantee. He doesn't say, your life is going to be miserable if you follow me because you have to do this thing all the time. But he does say, you will have to be ready to make a tough choice. It might not happen, but it might. And if they aren't ready, you'll notice reading through the Gospels, he doesn't actually send them away. He lets them walk away. There's this kind of strange gray area here where Jesus doesn't push people away who aren't ready to truly commit unless they get overly excited. And then he tries to calm them down. But for the most part, he's content to let us come along at our own pace. You know, he doesn't usually mention this, but throughout the entire time he's ministering in the Gospels, there would have been crowds of people following him who were less committed than the twelve. But they were there. They heard him teach. They saw him heal people. They might not have been as ready to commit as the twelve, but they were there. And he didn't send them away. Time and time again, he had compassion on them, and he fed them, and he talked to them. He was letting them come along at their own pace. But there is always the warning. 
following Jesus requires us to be willing to make hard choices, choices of self-denial. Now, it might just be foregoing worldly pleasures. One of the vows is just don't drink alcohol. But it might also be something more difficult. Anyone who is taking a Nazarite vow is promising to live in constant self-denial in ways which would be easily visible and noticeable to all the people around them so they can all hold that person accountable. If you take those vows, there is no hiding it if you break them. Jesus will tell his disciples that anyone who wishes to follow him will have to deny themselves and take up their cross daily. That is a difficult calling. It requires not just self-denial, but trust. Trust that God is here, that God loves you, that God will bless you as you carry your cross. And there's the connection between the blessing and the vows for the Nazarites. We're called by Jesus to live in self-denial. We're called to carry our cross. And being followers of Christ is inherently challenging. It's difficult. And at times, it's flat-out scary. And so we are reminded that even as we carry our cross, God lifts up his face to shine upon us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.